My family and I have a dog, and he's a good dog. He's a black lab, pretty big. He's over 80 pounds, sometimes close to 90 pounds. And, um, and uh, he's very strong. And he loves to run, and he loves to go for walks, and he loves to swim, and he loves to chase things, and he loves to play tug-of-war. Um, and so, um, when the weather is good, I have a frequent habit of getting up early before the sun is up and taking him for walks around our neighborhood. I enjoy it. He enjoys it. I only enjoy it when the weather is good, though, so when it's cold like now, I'm a lot less consistent. But when, during the warmer months of the year, um, it's pretty much my habit to take him for walks in the morning. And when you do that, when you have a habit of walking your dog in the morning and you do it about the same time every morning, you start to see patterns in your neighborhood. You see who leaves early and what time they consistently leave for work. You see other people jogging in, in the neighborhood. You see other people walking their dogs or going out for walks themselves alone. Um, you see people delivering newspapers. And so um, the more I do this, the more I see patterns in um, the lives of my neighbors. A couple of summers ago, I was walking my dog, and um, I saw a man coming up toward me um, that I'd never seen before in our neighborhood. And it was, again, it was, the, the sun was just barely starting to come up, and so it was very early. And um, I was wearing ear pods, I was listening to a, um, a podcast, and so I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. I, I tried to pay attention to my surroundings, but I wasn't paying too much attention to this man until I realized that he was yelling something. And so I paused what I was listening to, and it turns out he was yelling at me. And what he was yelling at me made no sense whatsoever. It was completely incoherent. I can't remember a thing he said, because pretty much everything he said was gibberish. And because nothing like this had ever happened to me before while walking my dog, it was kind of an unsettling experience. Um, I didn't feel afraid, but after he kept walking the other direction and I kept going where I was going, I thought maybe I should have felt afraid. I mean, maybe this is somebody who was mentally unstable, and if, if he had been armed, perhaps I could have been in a dangerous situation for a moment there. Um, and this situation is just one of a handful of times in my life where um, I felt like maybe I was in a situation where I was quite possibly in danger from somebody else. There haven't been a lot of times in my life where I, there's never been any time where I truly felt like I was in danger. There have been a handful of times where looking back, I thought maybe I should have been a little bit more careful about things because if something had been different in the situation, I might have been in danger. And all of that is to raise the issue of danger and the dangers that we encounter in this world. We all encounter various types of dangers. We live in an industrial society, and some of you work in industrial workplaces, and so those present certain types of dangers that you need to uh, be careful of, use safety precautions to avoid. But I'm talking about dangers posed not by machines or by common things in life, but I'm talking about dangers involving other people. The, fa the fact of the matter is, it's a fact of life that people can be dangerous. And that means throughout time and th at various points in our lives, dangers from others we might experience. Dangers from others is a part of human life. It's not a part of human life, hopefully, every day. If it is, maybe you should change your surroundings and try to move somewhere else. But 
certainly in some parts of the world where there are war, that might be the case. But um, throughout life, at various times, we encounter danger from other people. And these dangers can take different forms. The one that I talked about, which could have been a dangerous situation, and thankfully it wasn't, came from an individual. Sometimes we encounter danger from other people, from individual people. Sometimes people, individual people, who all have the same malice or the same ill um, intent get together and they form a group. And they're not a formal group, like they're not incorporated or they're not the government, but they form an informal type of group and they organize. And this can present dangerous situations to people as well. And of course, sometimes if you're on the wrong side of the law, danger can come from human governments. Danger from other people is a part of life. And the question is, what do we do when we encounter dangerous situations? What is our natural instinct when we feel like we might be in a dangerous situation involving one other person, an organized group of people, or maybe when we get pulled over by the police and we wonder what is going on? What goes through your mind when you encounter a potentially dangerous situation involving other people? Do you have the instinct to flee and get, get away from the potential danger? Do you have the instinct to fight back? These are the most common instincts that people have. It's called the fight or flight uh, response, and it's something that comes naturally to us as human beings. Here in Luke chapter 22, we've been following the life of Jesus Christ, and we've come now to the last week of his life, the week that he was crucified. And we've watched as he, earlier on and during this, what's called the Passion Week, he entered the city of Jerusalem and he was heralded by the people as a king. And the Bible tells us that after entering Jerusalem in this way, Jesus turned up at the temple day after day for the first several days of the week. And he spent his days in the temple teaching all day long. And at night he would retreat to a place called the Mount of Olives, a hill just outside the uh, city of Jerusalem, where he spent the night with his disciples. And for the past several weeks, we've been looking at the final night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, where Jesus gathered in an upper guest room with his disciples, and he observed and celebrated the Passover feast, which all observant Jewish people did and still do to this day. And during that Passover feast, as Christ gathered with his disciples, he took two of the elements of the feast, the unleavened bread and the wine in the cup, and he compared them to his body and blood as he told the disciples, my life is about to be poured out for yours, and told them that one of them was going to betray him, and that all of them would deny him and and turn their backs on him. And then after eating that last supper with his disciples, They left the upper room and they left the city of Jerusalem and they crossed the Kidron Valley and they ascended to the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says that every day that Jesus was there in Jerusalem, he would go to a garden, garden, an olive garden. It was a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus would have some private time alone with his disciples and they would spend time together praying. And this is where Christ went on this very night. And unlike the other nights of the week, 
Jesus and his disciples are about to encounter danger, danger from other people. As Jesus and his disciples gathered in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane and as they prayed together, they were in danger at this time. That's the scene that we find ourselves in this morning here in Luke chapter 22. And the passage begins in verse 47 by describing the imminent threat that Jesus and the disciples were facing. It says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, and this is where Jesus is admonishing the disciples to keep watch and pray. They'd been falling asleep as Christ himself prayed in anguish. Instead of praying with him and instead of praying for strength for the temptation that they were about to encounter, they were sleeping. And Jesus was speaking to them and admonishing them and urging them to pray. And verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And Luke doesn't tell us until later in this passage who is composed of this crowd. But imagine the situation where there are no um, electric lights, where there's no artificial lighting whatsoever. And the disciples have gone into this very dark garden at night. And they're there praying in the darkness together. And all of a sudden there is a commotion Surely some of the people coming were carrying torches, and so there was some light provided for them. But in the distance and in the darkness, it was difficult to tell who was coming and what their intentions were. And so Luke describes the situation where Christ and his disciples are there in Gethsemane. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is speaking, a crowd approaches. And verse 47 tells us that this crowd was led by one man. It was a man that Jesus and the disciples knew well. It was someone that Christ had hand-selected to be part of his 12, the disciples who spent the most time with Jesus. And in fact, this man, just a few moments or just probably less than an hour earlier, had been at the Passover table with Jesus. But now he's leading this band of people that are coming for Jesus Christ. And verse 47 tells us his name. His name is Judas. And despite our um, opinions about Judas, we know a lot more about him than the disciples did at this moment. We knew that Judas was not a true believer in Christ, that he was going to betray Jesus. And the Bible tells us in other passages that he was the treasurer and he would help himself to the money that was given to the disciples. But none of that was known to the other disciples of Jesus. They trusted Judas as much as they trusted any of the others of them. In fact, maybe more so because they did entrust him with the treasury. And so this man, Judas, is the one leading this group of people who are coming to find the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 47 goes on to say, this man, Judas, who was called uh, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Now that may seem strange in our culture where that kind of an intimate greeting is not customary. But in the times of Jesus Christ, this is how people greeted each other. Men greeted other men with with a kiss on the cheek and Women likewise, other women. This was a customary way of greeting. It was as common to them and as natural to them as shaking hands would be to us. And the purpose of this particular greeting is not just to um, greet Jesus. In fact, it's not to greet Jesus at all. It's to single him out in the darkness of Gethsemane. 
the people who are coming for Jesus with evil intentions might have difficulty knowing which Jewish bearded man is the one that they want to arrest. And so this follower of Christ, someone who knew him well, who knew his habits, who knew where he would be going and could find him easily in the dark, this man, Judas, sold himself out and said, I will, to, to the people who wanted to arrest Jesus, he said, I will get you to Jesus in a private place and I will identify him to you clearly so you know who to seize. And that's the purpose of Judas's kiss in this verse of Scripture. He is coming to identify Jesus so that Christ himself can be arrested. This means that Jesus and the disciples are in a position of danger. These people whom, Jesus, whom Judas is leading, this group of people that Judas is leading, do not have good intentions for Jesus. They intend to take him into custody, either hoping that he would surrender himself or using force if necessary. And if the disciples get in the way and try to prevent his arrest, these men are armed, as we'll find out later. And they are fully ready to do whatever it takes to fight off anyone who would like to protect Jesus and to take him into custody where he can be tried. And so Jesus and the disciples are in danger in this moment from this group of people. And the danger they face is the danger of assault and arrest. Again, if they put up any fight at all, they would be assaulted by this group and neutralized until Jesus could be arrested. And any of them who, uh, who resisted could themselves also be arrested and charged along with Christ. And so that is the threat that they are facing in verses 47 and 48. But Jesus is well aware of the situation. And so he says in verse 48, when Judas approaches him, to identify him with a kiss, Jesus says, verse 48, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Remember, the Son of Man is the title that Jesus used to refer to himself more than any other title or any other name in, the, in his uh, New Testament days, in the, in the four letters or the four books that we call the Gospels, whenever Jesus refers to himself. Most of the time, he uses this term, the Son of Man. And when Jesus says and asks Judas in verse 48, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The fact that he uses the word betray shows us that Christ knew his intentions. That Christ was well aware, as we have seen again and again, not only throughout the life of Christ, but especially during this week, the Passion Week. Jesus has foreknowledge of events and he knows what people are going to do in ways that only the Son of God could know, only someone who had been given um, insight by God himself. And so Jesus is well aware of their intentions. Now Jesus has prepared the disciples for this moment. He has been telling them that the time is coming when he will be arrested and he will be taken. And in fact, before they left the upper room, Jesus tells the disciples to prepare for this. And he even says, you can trust God, but if you want to go on your own, you better make sure you've got a sword or something to arm yourself because evil things are about to happen to us. And so this is the danger that the disciples and Christ himself are facing. They are facing 
physical assault and arrest. What happens next, though, is interesting because we see a difference in the responses that the disciples and Christ have to the imminent threat of danger from other people. In verse 49, it says, when Jesus' followers saw what was going on, and Luke uses the word followers here to refer to the 11 other disciples. Judas has departed, and he has come back to betray Jesus, but he's on the other side now. He switched teams. The other 11 followers of Jesus Christ see what is going on. And they remember Jesus saying, one of you is going to betray me. And he used the word betray at the table when he said it. Now Jesus is saying to Judas, are you coming to betray me? That word signals to them, to the, to the 11 disciples, that what is about to happen is going to be very negative. And their instincts when in danger from other people, begin to kick in. And so in verse 49, we read these words. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Remember, before they left the upper room, the disciples said, we have two swords on us. And so at least two of them are armed. And the question that they have is, should we prevent this arrest from happening? Should we initiate violence in this situation? to keep Jesus from being taken? That's the question that at least one of them has. The other one has a different idea. And we find out from other passages, other gospel accounts, not from Luke's, but from others, that it's, you guessed it, Simon Peter, the most impetuous of Jesus's disciples, the most assertive of Jesus's disciples, the most confident and one might say arrogant of Jesus's disciples, He doesn't wait around for Jesus to answer the question, should we strike with a sword? Instead, verse 50 says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Now, I don't know if he was just a bad shot, you might say, or a bad, I don't know what to say. Some have argued that maybe he was going right for his neck and the the man who got his ear cut off was trying to duck out of the way and that's why he only got his ear instead of his neck. I don't know the answer to this. But somehow in the darkness, Peter takes the sword that he has and he initiates violence against the group that has come against him. And so this is the reaction of the disciples. When they encounter this danger, the danger of assault and arrest, they responded with violence. They used the weapons that they had and the resources at their disposal to try to prevent Jesus from being taken or Jesus from being assaulted or themselves from being arrested or assaulted. That was their response to the mob that came for Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' response, as I've already suggested to you, was quite different. And we find as we look together in verses 51 through 53 that Jesus had a different reaction. Jesus reacted without violence to the danger that was posed to him by the men who came to arrest him. Look with me at verse 51. The scripture says, But Jesus answered, No more of this. Christ immediately puts an end to the violent strike that the disciples have initiated against the mob that has come to take him. And in fact, in a very incredible note of grace and tenderness, the Lord Jesus Christ uses his miraculous power 
to restore the one that his disciples had injured. Verse 51 continues to say, but Jesus answered no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. And so not only does Jesus put an end to the disciples' response of violence, but he actually fixes the damage that Peter does as he strike or as he struck out, or I don't know how to say it, but as he acted in violence against this mob and indiscriminately picked out one guy to assault, Jesus fixes the damage that this man created. He heals this man of the wound that Peter inflicted upon him with his sword. And then in verse 52, Jesus responds to the group itself. First, he speaks to the disciples. He tells them to stand down from the violence that they uh, have begun. And then he actually, again, uh, healed the man that was wounded by Peter's violence. And so he's dealt with the disciples here. Now he turns to the crowd that came to arrest him. And we find together in verse 52 that he challenges the enemies who came to use violence. In verse 52, we read these words. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Now, this is the first time that Luke has identified the men who have come to arrest Jesus. And part of the reason why Luke held this information for now is to add suspense to the story and to uh, help us to um, visualize what was going on in the story better. Jesus and his disciples, well, Jesus knew, but the disciples couldn't tell just based on the noise and the whatever light sources they had of the men approaching exactly who was coming. They didn't know if it was Roman soldiers coming for him or if it was the men who ultimately came for him or if it was somebody else with evil intent. And so they have no idea at first who is coming and who is posing this dangerous threat to Jesus. But now Luke gives us some, some insight into the people involved in this story. And in verse 52, when it calls them the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders, it's giving us some insight into what's going on in this story. In verse 52, the chief priests are those who control the temple and its infrastructure. They are from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe known as Levi. And thousands of years before, God had chosen their tribe to be the people who ministered before the Lord on behalf of the people. These people, the chief priests, controlled the, the temple. They controlled the, the uh, offerings and worship that went on there. And they were the ones who were most financially impacted when Jesus entered the temple a few days before and threw out the people exchanging money and selling uh, animals to be sacrificed. These guys were profiting by selling uh, things that people would need to worship in the temple, and they were charging apparently exorbitant prices. They weren't just providing a convenience to the people. They were imposing upon them expenses to worship the Lord that were inappropriate, and Jesus removed them. Well, now this same group has organized against Christ, and one of the reasons they have come for him is because Christ has impacted their wallet immediately with the way that he has been acting here in this final week of his life. And so they're part of the group that has come for Jesus, the chief priests. Verse 52 also talks about the officers of the temple guard. And what you need to understand is, and this, this, these people appear a few times in the Gospels, but not often. But what you need to understand is that in addition to the clergy 
who served in this way in the temple. There were also people who provided security to the temple. There were armed guards in the temple to protect it from being robbed, to protect uh, people who might, because when you get a lot of group people together, there might be a violent confrontation from them. These people were there to uh, break up that kind of a thing. And they were also there to provide a first line of defense against maybe the Romans if they came to attack the temple. And so there are armed and trained security personnel who work in the temple, and they are the ones who are also part of the group that have come to arrest Jesus. Finally, in verse 52, we read that there's a third group. They're just called the elders. And these are the sort of the informal leaders of the various towns and villages and even the city of Jerusalem. These localities had a very informal type of government structure. And when disputes were, bro- had, were to break out between people about maybe where a boundary line belongs or whether a certain price was agreed upon, some of the oldest men in the city would be approached and they would, be, they would serve as judges to say who was in the right and who was in the wrong according to God's word. These are also part of the people who have come to arrest Jesus. And other gospel accounts tell us that there were probably some Roman soldiers involved as well. And so we have some people who are not very well trained in terms of arresting people and in terms of security. And we have some people, the temple guards and the Roman soldiers, who are well trained in arresting people and restraining them and using violence if necessary. But the point of, the, of this that I want you to understand here is that this is really not a, an organized kind of government arrest. When we talk about somebody being arrested, we typically think of people, you know, officers of the law wearing blue, you know, showing up with lights and sirens blaring and um, using weapons if needed, but forcibly taking somebody into custody, handcuffing them, putting them in the squad car and taking them away to be processed, all right? There's a formal type of arrest, That is typically what we think of when we think of somebody being arrested. But that's not what's going on here. These men are not approaching, and they're not identifying themselves as officers of the law. They're not showing their badges. And they are not in any way making an official kind of arrest. And at best, they're doing what we might call a citizen's arrest. But the truth of the matter is, they're going to need some legal protection for what they intend to do. They intend to eliminate Jesus as a threat to their religion, to their livelihood, to their leadership. But at this moment, they have no official authorization to take him. They have organized on their own because of their own motivations to take Jesus into custody. And so Jesus challenges them and says to them in verse 52, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs. Ultimately, this is exactly what Jesus will be charged with. He'll be charged with insurrection before the Roman government. But Jesus challenges the very idea that these men needed to show up with arms to take him into custody. Because Jesus in his teaching has always taught nonviolence. He has been one who has said, as we'll see in a little bit, do not resist an evil person. 
And so Christ is challenging the very notion that they needed to come armed to take him into custody. He's also challenging the notion that they needed to come privately to take him into custody. Look again at verse 53 now. Jesus says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. Jesus says, you didn't have to make a special trip out here with your clubs and your sharpened swords and your torches. I was right there in your own precincts every day. I was just there maybe even earlier that day teaching. And I wasn't armed. You could have taken me into custody at any time, Jesus is saying, and I would not have resisted because, as he says in verse uh, 52, I am not leading a... That's the intent of his question. It's phrased in such a way that it expects a negative reply. Christ is saying, I am not leading a rebellion. This is not my army. I am not trying to take over the government structure by force. I am a peace-loving man teaching the word of God. And yes, I have come to Jerusalem as a king, but I need to be received as a king by faith, not by force. And so Christ pushes back on the threat of violence that his enemies have, have brought with them to the Garden of Gethsemane. He challenges them and says, but you did not lay a hand on me. You could have taken me peacefully into custody anytime you wanted. But you chose to wait until people were far away, until it was dark, until we were, as you thought at least, unprepared, and take me into custody this way. And why did this all happen the way it did? Well, Jesus gives us a clue as to the answer, and he's given us pieces of the answer before this. But at the end of verse 53, he says this, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Why did Jesus allow himself to be taken peaceably into custody? Why did he not command his followers who had swords on them to fight back against this mob that was going to take him without legal authority into custody and try to manufacture a crime against him to get him executed. Why did Jesus respond the way that he did? The answer is because he saw what was unseen. He knew that behind the threats of physical violence and behind the the pernicious motives of those who came to arrest Jesus... There was a spiritual thing going on. There were spiritual forces at play. And so he says at the end of verse 53, that is, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Christ knows that this moment has been ordained by God the Father. And in order for it to happen as God the Father has ordained, it was necessary for God to withdraw his protection From his son Jesus Christ. And to allow the forces of darkness who hated Jesus and tried to derail his ministry again and again and again, it was necessary for them to come in and use the powers that they had, the the earthly powers of this world, to take Christ into custody. And so Jesus and the disciples face this danger in the Garden of Gethsemane, but Christ is unafraid. And Christ is not reactionary in the way that one might normally react. Anyone could be, uh, no one would be faulted, I should say, for fighting back against a mob that tries to take you in the dark. 
It's one of the natural responses. It's fight or flight. And fighting would be legitimate in this situation, especially in the culture in which Jesus lived, where many men walked around with arms, as we saw in a previous message. And it was considered normal and, in fact, good to be prepared to defend yourself against dangers from others and to prepare, be prepared to protect your family and friends from the dangers of others. And so despite the dangers that they face, Jesus surrenders. And in so doing, he teaches us quite a bit about our reaction to hostility around us, especially hostility that comes from the spiritual realm. Now, we live under the protection and enjoyment of a society that legally allows us to worship God as we see fit. And for hundreds of years, we've had the ability to be Christians and be public about it and to gather in public and to worship in public and to speak of our faith in public without being concerned about being attacked by an angry mob or being taken into custody even by official government channels. But what we enjoy and the protections that we have as Americans for what we call freedom of religion, has not typically been enjoyed by Christians in other centuries, or even Christians in our century, in our day and age, in other countries. In fact, the truth of the matter is, the more typical situation for Christians like us is to face dangers from other people. Christians in other countries and in other centuries of time have faced dangers from individuals who don't like the message that we have and don't like to be told that we are accountable to God and we will all stand before Him and give an account of our life and be treated with justice by God for the way that we've lived. There's a lot of individuals, as you know, who don't like that. In other cultures, they may react with violence. There are also other religions that don't like the message that we have, particularly the claim of exclusivity, that only in Jesus Christ can you find your way to God, and only in Him can you find forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. There are other religions who don't like that. And in other time periods and in other cultures, they might be tempted, and and in fact have, reacted with violence against Christians who come with the message of Jesus Christ that we call the gospel. And even governments have shown hostility toward our faith. I saw recently a video of the Chinese government tearing down a Catholic church in China. And that kind of hostility is not only toward the more visible uh, expressions of religion in China, but even toward what, what was called the underground churches in China. Even in our own day, in North Korea, in many other areas of the world, people like us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and are trying to live as his disciples face dangerous threats from their government because of the faith that you and I share in common with them. In this passage of Scripture, we see Christ's nonviolent response to those who had malicious intent toward him. 
And it's important for us to understand this story in order to connect it with everything else about Christ and in order to understand that he went willingly to the cross where he died for our sins because it was part of God's plan for him. All of that is important. But it's also important for us to understand what Christ demonstrates to us about violence and what he taught to us about violence and how we as Christians who live in a free society, but one that is increasingly becoming less tolerant toward our beliefs and one that someday might turn violent toward our beliefs. What do we take away from this story? I think the answer is pretty simple, but it's really important and very profound. And that is when we face the kind of issue that Christ himself faced in this passage. We need to learn to trust God and his plan when our faith or our church are in danger. Again, this is not a threat that we face immediately. It's not one we will probably face tomorrow or this year, perhaps. But the signs are there that we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to either various aspects of what we believe God's law and God's word teaches or to our faith as a whole. So while we don't face the kind of imminent danger that the disciples faced, the truth of the matter is we probably, some of us, will face it someday. The challenge we have is to emulate Christ and trust God in those moments when ourselves, when our faith, when our church are in danger. And so I want to take a few moments and talk in a larger Um, in a larger sense about the use of violence in Scripture, what the Scripture has to say about it, and some various ways we might apply both what Jesus taught and the way Jesus acted in this passage. All right, so let me take some time to, uh, to flesh out this big idea, applicationally speaking. What does it mean to trust God in this plan when our faith or our church are in danger? Well, first we need to understand this that the scriptures are pretty negative about violence as a whole. In fact, there are only two exceptions. There are only two situations where violence is ever justified in scripture. And so I want to show you those in order for us to understand um, where Christ comes from on this. The first situation where violence is justified in scripture is immediate self-defense. Immediate self-defense. And I say immediate because sometimes people think they need to defend themselves against somebody else when that person isn't immediately um, threatening them. All right, This is talking about somebody who has come to your house and you're in immediate danger. The Bible is clear about this, that you have the right to use violence in self-defense. And we see this in Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, which says, If a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow... The defender is not guilty of bloodshed, but if it happens after sunrise, the defendant is guilty of bloodshed. Even there, in a passage that gives us the right of self-defense and gave ancient Israel the right of self-defense, there were conditions and parameters put on how that defense could be used. The fact, the difference between nighttime and daytime is you might not be able to bring somebody to justice who breaks into your house at night. If they steal your stuff, you might never see who they are. But in the daytime, you're going to recognize, hey, this is my next-door neighbor who's broken in here to take away something of value of mine. All right, Then you have the proper means of taking that person to justice. And the implication is 
You should not use violence if you don't have to. That's the point of this passage of Scripture. And so when do we have the right to use violence? Well, scripturally speaking, one of two conditions, one of two situations is for immediate self-defense. When you or your family are in immediate danger from someone else, then we have the right to self-defense. The second situation where self-defense is justified, where violence is justified, is defending the vulnerable from exploitation. The Bible tells us that actually we have a responsibility toward people who could be exploited by others using physical force to defend them. And one passage that teaches this comes to us from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 through 12, which says, rescue those being led away to death. You see, the point is this person is, this other person is in immediate physical danger. And it goes on to say, hold back those staggering toward slaughter. And so this is somebody who's uh, maybe um, in, a, in a more um, different kind of situation where maybe their own foolishness is leading them in a bad situation. But the point is, it's not our job to just sit back and say, it's none of my business. The Bible says, if we see somebody in danger, we are obligated to act. The passage goes on and says, if you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weigh the heart perceive it? Does he not who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? The Bible says God is going to hold us accountable. When we see others who are vulnerable and we stand by and say, this is none of my business. So there are situations where using violence, using whatever means necessary that we have at our disposal is justified in Scripture. But they are rare and they are tempered by other commands that tell us to use restraint. I also can't talk about violence without talking about the officially sanctioned type of violence that happens when nations go to war. And one of the questions that scriptures have, uh, that Christians have dealt with is, what is the proper response to military service for Christians? And as you probably know, there are some Christians who believe it's wrong for Christians to be involved in military service. Does the Bible teach this? I think this is an appropriate way, appropriate place for us to think about it. And so, In addition to talking about the situations where violence is justified, I want to say this. The Bible affirms military service, but condemns nations that use violence unjustly. And what I'm trying to say here is this. The Bible does not say it's wrong to serve in the military. In fact, I'll show you in a minute just the opposite of that. But that doesn't mean that the question is immediately settled, in my view. I don't think that means that every Christian... Uh, can necessarily serve in a military situation. In fact, I think there are, there's a lot of thought and a lot of, um, a lot of uh, theological processing that needs to go on before someone chooses to serve in the military, not just the American military, but any military in which that person might live. So let's get into this a little bit, and let's talk about the fact that the Bible affirms military service. John the Baptist, when he went out preaching repentance was approached by various groups of people saying, how do we put this repentance into practice? In other words, now that we've come confessing our sins and we've been baptized as your disciples, what exactly does God want us to to change about our lives or not change about our lives? One of the groups that approached John the Baptist was a group of soldiers. And their question is, what should we do? All right, and I'll show you the passage. We've seen this already, but it's from Luke chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 15. And there the scripture says, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And the implication of the question is, are we supposed to get out of the military? Is it wrong for us to continue to serve in the military? 
now that we have repented of our sins and become followers of yours and believe the gospel? Now, to answer this question and to look at John's answer, we need to um, come to some understanding of who these soldiers exactly are. Some people have suggested that the soldiers in this passage are what Luke calls here in our passage in Luke chapter 22, the temple guards. In other words, these are like security guys at the mall, okay? And they're saying, should we stop being security for the temple? But I don't think that's at all what, what is going on. And the reason why some people have speculated this is because they, they find it hard to, say that, to see Roman soldiers coming to John and John saying, oh yeah, just go on being a Roman soldier. But I think that's exactly what's happening. The, the term that's used for soldier here is not someone who is simply a guard. We have a different word for that. And so it looks like John is talking to Roman soldiers who have a crisis of conscience about whether it is right for them to continue serving in the military for the Roman government. And what is John's answer to them? It says in this verse, he replied, don't extort money. In other words, don't use your power to harm other people, to disadvantage them, to steal from them. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. That's it. And I think the logic is very easy to see that if it was okay for someone who had believed the gospel and was a follower of John the Baptist who was going to lead them to Christ, if it was okay for a man in that situation to serve in his military, even though it was the Roman military, not the Jewish military, if John the Baptist did not have a problem with them serving in the Jewish military and in fact affirmed that they could do it in an ethical way, then I think it's appropriate to say the Bible does not condemn military service. Now look, this is a sensitive topic because we have veterans in our church. We have active duty military people in our church. And we have young people, maybe, who are thinking about volunteering for military service. And so I want to say very clearly that the Bible affirms that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and serve in the military. But I also want to point out to you that I don't think that every bit of military, uh, military deployed by our country or others is necessarily justified. All right? And so that brings me to the second part of this statement, which is that the Bible condemns nations that oppress other nations with violence. And I'm not going to show you Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 19, because obviously it's a pretty large passage of Scripture. But I commend you to take some time to look at this and to look at other passages of scripture and and see how God used foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon to bring correction and judgment to his people. And yet God said, I'm going to hold these nations accountable for the violence that they have brought upon Israel and Judah and other nations that were not opposing them. And so I think if you're a Christian, you ought to think very carefully about U.S. foreign policy if you're thinking about military service. You may be deployed, if you serve in the military, to attack a nation that hasn't attacked us. Yes, I believe in self-defense, but I believe in immediate self-defense. The fact that another nation somewhere else has an army and might be developing weapons does not necessarily mean they are an immediate threat to us that we need to defend ourselves against. And yet, a lot of the things that have, done, have been done in terms of U.S. foreign policy. Use that as a justification. They use self-defense, but against nations that are really no threat to us. 
And so I think the question is complicated. And I think that a serious Christian needs to think seriously about what you might be deployed to do and whether you might be called on to do something that God would say is wrong. The Bible affirms military service. But I think we be, need to be very careful. And I, by the way, this also re- refers to how we vote and how we support U.S. foreign policy abroad. I think we as Christians need to be very careful about sanctioning anything the U.S. government wants to do. Because the Bible is very clear that God will hold nations accountable that use violence unjustly. Now let's talk about something that's a little more comfortable for me. Let me take a deep breath here. And talk about um, um, our reaction to violence in more, um, in more use, usable terms or more, um, more individualistic ways. All right? and the, the next principle I want to talk about is, is this, that Christ commanded us as individuals to trust him when we are threatened with danger. Yes, the Bible says there is a proper time for self-defense. But Jesus prepared the disciples for this by contrasting the times that they trusted him to take care of them, and if they, because they were going to reject him shortly after this incident, they're going to run away from Jesus Christ in fear, and Jesus is going to say, you're on your own, you're, you're up to your own resources here. And we as Christians, we need to think about when we might be in a situation where we are threatened either for our faith or just personally, whether we're really trusting God or whether we're trusting in ourselves and our weapons and our training. Christ commanded us as individuals to, th- to trust him when we are threatened with danger. And I reference here verses 35 through 38 where Christ, again, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, where Christ said, um, you know, you're going to be on your own if you reject me. You're not going to have the protection of God that you had when I sent you out as my missionaries. When we choose not to trust God for our physical safety, then we are on our own. We're operating according to our own resources. But God commands us and Christ commands us to trust him when we are threatened with danger. Let me show you another teaching of Christ where Jesus explicitly says this. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, the scripture says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Here Christ is advocating nonviolence to a violent response. And I don't think it's an absolute statement of Christ. I still think the right of self-defense exists. But I think what Christ is teaching us here is that we ought to seek nonviolent solutions to the threats that we faced as much as possible. That as Christians who believe in God and have our faith in God, we should trust God when we feel threatened or when we actually are in danger. We should trust God and seek a peaceful solution until that option has been exhausted. Jesus said also in the same context, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And so as Christians, we ought to be very careful about responding with violence when we feel threatened or in danger, and certainly initiating violence in this world. And the reason why we need to trust God is that ultimately, as Christ himself recognized, behind the threats of physical danger to us, there is a spiritual thing going on. 
Well, often we're not clued into the spiritual dimension, but the Bible says that the things that really threaten us in this world are actually spiritual problems, not physical dangerous threats. And so this next principle, I would say, is we need to trust God because these dangers are spiritual attacks. In verse 3, the Bible says it is Satan who led Judas to, to uh, betray Jesus Christ. And then back in uh, verse 31, Jesus talked about uh, the spiritual aspect of what was going on when he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift all of you as wheat. The things that were happening to Jesus played out in the physical realm with real armed guards, with real weapons. And yet behind it all was the working of Satan to do his will. And so that's why Jesus says here in our passage in verse 53, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. See, Jesus understood that the only reason that these men were able to take him was not that they found him away from the crowds and not because the disciples only had two swords instead of 11 and not because it was dark and they were in Gethsemane. No, they were able to take Jesus because it was the will of God. And we need to understand that God's will might involve suffering for us in our lives. That God might allow us to encounter situations where we feel threatened and actually are in danger and where we might be assaulted for his larger purpose and will. God allows darkness to reign at times, but it will never win. And part of trusting God is to trust him in those times when we feel in danger and when we feel threatened because these dangers are spiritual attacks. Finally, for this, uh, well, let me read this important verse from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. You've, you're familiar with it. Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, and he says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is why uh, firearms training is not an essential part of Christian di- discipleship. Okay? It, it's a useful skill, but it's not part of discipleship because ultimately we're not out there fighting a battle against other physical soldiers. Instead, the Scripture says... Our our struggle is against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we find ourselves in positions of danger, particularly because of our faith in Christ, something bigger is going on, and it's a spiritual battle. And trusting God means recognizing this and asking for God's will. And so this brings me then to the final response in this, in this uh, series of application points. How do we trust God then? We do it by prayer. That's what Christ had been teaching and advocating and practicing himself right before this happened. And he told the disciples, pray so that you won't fall prey to the temptation that you're about to face. And the Bible advocates for us to be watchful in prayer because there are spiritual things going on. There are enemies of God who would like to harm us. We protect ourselves against them through prayer. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 28, Jesus said, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And we see in the life of Christ, even in these dark moments when darkness reigns, he heals one of the men who came to arrest him, a man who was willing to do violence to him if necessary. Jesus healed the man. And later on, Jesus says of those who crucified him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. When you feel in danger and threatened, 
even if it's a more organized type of persecution that comes to us, the Bible tells us to pray for those who would oppose us in these ways. And we actually see this working out in the Scriptures. I told you that it was Simon Peter who used the sword to cut off this man's ear. And God had said to Simon Peter, you're going to face an even greater challenge to your faith than this. You're going to deny me three times this very night. But after God had worked in Peter's life and he'd been restored to Christ and his discipleship, we see that Peter faced another dangerous situation in his life. We find in the book of Acts that he was arrested. And those who arrested him, mean to, mean, they meant to do him harm. They did harm to another of Christ's disciples, James. They put him to death. And so when, G, when Peter was arrested in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, we read these words. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. It was about this time that King Herod, King Herod is sort of a puppet king under the Roman government. He was a Jewish man, but not really. Anyway, it says that about that time, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, all right? You don't get any more dangerous than that. Verse 3 says, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him into prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That's the response that Jesus wants from him. By the way, Peter was sleeping when he actually received deliverance from this. So you see a man who went from the fight or flight response to someone who knew what it meant to rest and trust in God for his physical protection and safety. And this is what it means for us as followers of Christ. Ultimately, we need to put our trust in God and His plans for us, regardless of what dangers may befall us, even those that befall us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So following the example of Christ, we need to learn to trust God and His plan when our faith and our church are in danger. In 1984, a church named the Indianapolis Baptist Temple, which is, as you probably guessed, located in Indianapolis, Indiana, okay? It, this happened in the United States. In 1984, this church decided that the freedom of religion that is accorded to us in the First Amendment meant that they didn't have to withhold federal taxes or Social Security from employees of the church. And so they stopped withholding and stopped paying the federal government for any of their employees. That happened in 1984. And after many years of going back and forth with the IRS, legal threats, and so on, fast forward from 1984 to 2001. According to the federal government, because they, of all, these, um, not this, all of these taxes not being withheld from their pay, the uh, federal government believed that this church, the Indianapolis Baptist Temple, owed them over $6 million. And they told them, we are going to take your church building. Six people moved into the church building, including the pastor emeritus and the pastor, because they did not want to have the building taken from them when they were not there. Now, in some situations, some people in this situation might have decided to arm themselves and prepare to shoot it out with the federal government. A really bad idea, but it has been tried, not necessarily by Baptist tabernacles, but you, you, you understand that this has happened. 
These people decided they were going to wait, and when barricades were put up outside the church building and U.S. Marshals came to take the building, they went into the, the, the six people who were in the building, came into the sanctuary and began praying. And they were forcibly removed from the church. They were not arrested, but they were carried out against their will. The pastor emeritus was actually carried out on a gurney, like, like he had, had an injury of some kind. The government took their church building, demolished most of it, and used the rest for a charter school. What do we say in response to this kind of thing? Because it could happen to us. If the federal government decides that in some way that we violated U.S. law, and that could very well happen, they might say that we owe the state of Michigan property taxes, and they might say we owe them back property taxes. We might not be able to pay what is required of us. And someday this building that you and I have paid for with our tithes and offerings that we've put sweat equity into with repairs and work that we've done on it, someday it might be forcibly seized from us. What is the right response to this? Should we arm ourselves and build an armory here in the church and prepare to shoot it out with the federal government? Of course not. Sometimes God allows darkness to reign. When that happens, we need to trust God and His plan. From what I've read about the Indianapolis Baptist Temple, I don't think it's the kind of church that I would want to be in or have my family associated with. I do believe they're Christians, but I do believe they also have a lot of false beliefs, including about federal withholding taxes. But I don't think it's the kind of church I would necessarily want to join. But from what I've read about them, the church has actually begun to thrive from the time that they were, their building was seized and they had to go out and kind of start over. They've done well. God has protected them from it, the, the seizure of their, of their asset becoming the end of the church. And in fact, God has used them, apparently. He's blessed the gospel message as it has gone out through them. Trusting God means not necessarily understanding the plan that God has. But it means, as Christ himself did, submitting to what God wills and not resisting it with violence. And so you and I, as believers in Christ, we need to think about these things. We need to think about how we would use violence and what situations it might be right and what situations it might be wrong. Ultimately, in every situation where we are faced with danger, we need to learn to trust God and his plan when our faith or our church are in danger. This is what Jesus did.